Would you join me in a word of prayer, please? Lord, we come before you today. Uh, Lord, seeking to work through a passage that uh, on some levels is familiar to us. Uh, we've heard about the plagues before. Uh, those of us who've grown up in church may have memorized what they are, but maybe we have not taken time to actually um, observe what it is that you are doing and how you're doing it in the midst of these plagues. And so, Lord, uh, Lord, would you give us wisdom this morning? Would you give us understanding? What we know not, Lord, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And, Lord, what, what we are not, we ask, Lord, that you would make us now in Jesus' name. And allow me to be your messenger, your mouthpiece, uh, Lord, to proclaim this truth for your glory. We ask this now in your precious name. Amen. Well, as you know, as we've been working our way through this book of Exodus, one of the things that we have been uh, privileged to do is to see uh, the manifold character of God on display. Uh, we have seen him again and again. And of course, this is what the theme of the book is all about, that I will be known. And he certainly is revealing himself. He reveals himself as the covenant God the one who covenanted with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the creator God, the self-sustaining I am of Exodus chapter 3, where Moses encounters the burning bush. He is the sovereign God who is busy orchestrating the affairs of the world to accomplish his purposes. He is the patient God who is willing to work through weak and fearful people to accomplish his will. He is the all-powerful God who will turn water into blood, who will cover the land with frogs and take them away at a time Pharaoh said was agreeable to him. And he's a God who creates gnats over, uh, over man and beast. All of this in the face of Egypt's Pharaoh, in the face of the people of Egypt, and ultimately their man-made gods. And there were many of them. So in the first three plagues, we, we see God as unique. He is a unique God. If you have your Bibles open, just notice as we go, just highlight what God says as He reveals Himself in those first three plagues. In chapter 7, verse 17, He says, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. That's capital L-O-R-D, the I am, the I am, the God of heaven. That, that one who is the creator, self-standing God. And secondly, notice as you go to the next plague, he says that you may know that there is none or no one like the Lord our God. And then at the third plague, the magicians identify what's going on here as the finger of God. In other words, we can't duplicate this. And so the emphasis here is the fact that that God is revealing himself as this unique God. He, there is none like him. He's all-powerful. He is supreme. He is this exclusive God of the universe. So does that mean that all other religions are wrong? Well, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? And of course, the answer is yes. That is exactly what God is saying. He comes into this context of Egypt that have myriad gods, and he says, I am the one true God. And we see that over and over and over again. 
So he certainly is the exclusive God. He is the unique God. Isaiah 42 verse 8 says this, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, uh, nor my praise to carved idols. We jump to the New Testament and we find this. This is Acts chapter 4 and verses 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the, the message that got the disciples thrown into jail. And friends, this is the message that marks Christianity. God is a unique God. So friends, God wants the Egyptians to understand this. He wants Moses and the people of Israel to understand this. And ultimately, he wants us to understand this. That Yahweh, the I Am, the God of Israel, is an exclusive, unique, and powerful God. Now when we come to our present text, and that would be the next three plagues, plagues 4, 5, and 6, the emphasis here is a little different. Here we have God who makes distinctions. If you'll notice uh, in verse 22 of chapter 8, he says, my people are set apart. God sets apart people. In chapter 9, verse 4, he says he is making a distinction. And friends, this is a difficult characteristic of God that is not popular in this world or even among Christians. Our God is a God who distinguishes. He shows favor to some and not to others. He elects some and not others. Now, why does God want to show this to Israel? Why does he want to show this to us? See, God is not a, a loving God in a general sense. He is a loving God in a more specific intimate, personal sense. See, when we pray, He hears us personally. He's not somewhere up in heaven hearing just a, a whole bunch of voices and not really being able to, to make out any of them, just kind of these general prayers going up. No, no, no. God hears us personally. He is our God collectively, yes, but He's our God specifically, personally. And friends, this is important. This is important for the second generation to know. Uh, this is the second generation who grew up in the wilderness, who did not actually experience the suffering and the burden of Egypt. And as Moses is writing this book, he's wanting to remind them and to, to solidify in their thinking, their understanding of where they've come from. And so he's saying to them, this is who I am. I am unique. And this is who you are. You are set apart. You are distinct. You're my chosen people. Now, friends, these two truths are an offense to the world. People don't like the fact that there's only one way. But this is what Jesus says. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's exclusive language. You can't say, well, there's many ways to get to heaven, and Jesus is one of them. Jesus would say, no, there's not. There's only one way, and it's through me. He is exclusive in that statement. 
And people don't like what the scriptures teach about the doctrine of election either. Often it comes simply because people are not taking time to understand it. But the, the, the doctrine of election basically says that God, by His own sovereign wisdom, chooses those who are His. And here we've come to this passage in the history of Israel, and we're finding that God chose Abraham. And in choosing Abraham, he does that out of his own wisdom, out of his own uh, desires. He could have chosen someone else, but he doesn't. And he chooses to raise up a nation through him. You can't go back and say, well, he chose Abraham because of X, Y, and Z. No, God just chose him out of his wisdom, out of his divine sovereign plan. Now, friends, in fact, not only does the world hate that truth, but many in the body of Christ are offended by it. Now, friends, why did God choose Abraham? Why did God choose Israel? Why did he choose Moses? Because that was part of his divine sovereign plan. See, friends, ours is not to question God's sovereign wisdom and will. Ours is to step back and marvel at it. That God would take sinful creatures deserving of nothing other than eternal judgment and would breathe into them the breath of eternal life through Jesus Christ. That is something to be amazed at. And as we enter into these next three plagues against Pharaoh and Egypt and Egypt's gods, we must do this. We must marvel at the fact that God's people are set apart by God for His glory. That is a wonderful statement, but that statement also comes with great responsibility. The plagues are structured now into three groups of three, with the final plague being the, the impact or the ultimate emphasis. And each of these three groups are identical in structure, if you remember. Um, in, in each of these three groups, there, it begins with a confrontation in the morning where Pharaoh is warned by Moses. Then there is this warning that takes place in Pharaoh's palace. And then there is a plague that happens without any warning. And each three of these groups, the same thing has taken place. So in our text, we'll see this progression from morning to the palace to the plague without a warning. And in each case, God is seeking to confront Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, as well as the various and numerous gods of Egypt. But he's also seeking to teach that audience that he's speaking to, the second generation of Israelites that were raised up in the wilderness. And he's seeking to teach us and to show us who he is and what he has done and how wonderful and marvelous he is as our God. But you'll also notice that as we move through these, uh, these plagues, they will each increase in a measure of severity. Let's jump now into this first plague. And we're going to spend a good bit of time here in this plague because it lays out kind of a foundation even to understand the other plagues. So let's first of all think about flies that are swarming. And here, I just want to highlight that there's an emphasis here that God sets us apart for a particular worship. 
And notice, first of all, God's demands. As we've said the last couple of times, God's demands haven't changed. When God speaks, you and I have a choice, and the choice is twofold. We can obey His word, or we can suffer the consequences. Let's just think about then that first choice, obeying His word. Let my people go that they may serve me. That's what he says. Moses is underscoring again why God's people had to depart from Egypt. What is the reason why he wants them to leave? It's not just to to leave and go. He's saying, I want you to go. I want to let them go so that they can go and serve me. And that word serve has the idea of worship. So God is concerned with the worship of his people, about their freedom to worship, and the fact that he has instructed them how to worship. Friends, we're, we're all sheltering in place right now, and there's a sense in which that we can understand some of the frustration that maybe they're going through. Now, our, our experience does not compare to what they were going through. We are suffering a little bit, but we're really not suffering that much at all. But we are longing for face-to-face in, interaction as the body of Christ. But our circumstances are certainly different. Our governor has not spoken specifically against churches gathering. He's not targeted churches object of his wrath or the basis of his policies. No, his restrictions are for gatherings of all kinds, right? Sports events, high school events, corporate training, conferences, concerts, plays, PDA meetings, graduations, birthday parties. So he's not singling out Christians or churches. There is in each of us a hunger and a desire to gather together as a body as soon as we possibly can. And that's understandable. But I wonder if during this time, God has put in you a new and fresh appreciation for the church gathered. Are you more eager to meet with the body of Christ? When we are able to meet again, Will you be eager to be present? And how long will that eagerness continue before it begins to wear off? One of the priorities that is driving this plague account is God's desire for His people to separate themselves so that they can worship Him. So when you look again at Israel and Egypt, God is demanding that his people be liberated to worship him freely in the wilderness. So obey my word. This is what I'm saying, uh, uh, Pharaoh, that I want you to do. Secondly, if you don't, you will suffer the consequences. Now, what are the consequences? I I think it's interesting here in verse 21, it says, or else, (laughs) or else, this is what I'm going to do. And he says, I will send a swarm of flies. Now, you know, initially that may not seem that bad, right? But you know, flies are not pretty things. Just think through this a little bit. Imagine sitting in your living room and trying to read a book, and there's one fly buzzing around. That, my friends, is a distraction. Now, imagine that there are 10 flies. Now, that would be a nuisance, wouldn't it? Imagine there are 50 flies. 
That would be more than a distraction. That would be more than a nuisance. That would be somewhat unbearable. But imagine a whole plague, a whole swarm of flies. So many flies that they would cover every inch of carpet and they would be up and down the wall. They would be all over your body, even in your face. That would be overwhelming. And friends, it wouldn't stop. Imagine the noise level. Imagine all the filthiness of those flies. And if the scholars are right, these were likely dog flies, the variety of flies that bite flesh. As you may have heard me in the past couple of weeks, I lived for many years in Michigan, and uh, at night, or even from dusk into night, you didn't want to go outside because of the big mosquitoes they have there. Well, during the day, it wasn't much better because they have these things called the horsefly. And the horsefly is like huge. It's about the size of a, of a quarter or something like that. So they're, they're really big. And they come and they bite you. And it's painful. And they leave a, a, a welt on your skin. That's just one fly. Now, can you imagine if there's a swarm of flies that is biting, that is devouring? It's no wonder that we're told here in this text that the land was ruined by the swarm of flies. But this plague wasn't just about the land. God had some specific intentions and confrontations in mind. This plague confronts Pharaoh personally. He talks here about you will be affected. As one commentator says, it was not the big things that bothered Pharaoh, but the little things in great quantities. This plague also confronts the Egyptian people. Your servants and your people will be affected. Those who worked for Pharaoh, those who were part of his cabinet, as well as the people of Egypt. But this plague also confronts Egypt's gods. Now, the gods of Egypt that he's confronting here are likely... Uh, made up of the ones I'm going to mention, but we've already seen so far a number of the gods that have been confronted. In the first plague, we saw Hopi and uh, Osiris and Knum. In the second plague, Heket. And in the third plague, Geb. And he was the, the god of the earth. Here in this plague, the swarm of flies, uh, the, the, the god of Israel will confront and show as impotent the following gods. And there's two that really come to mind. One is Kefir, the god of the resurrection. He is seen as a scarab, in other words, a beetle. And for those of you Disney fans, it's this scarab beetle that is featured in the film Aladdin as the key to the cave of wonders. You remember, it comes together and it kind of flies off. That was a sacred image it was one of those, uh, those creatures that were worshipped by the people. But then, of course, there's Beelzebub, also known as the Lord of the Flies. And so this is used as a description of Satan. So, again, God is speaking against Pharaoh and the Egyptian people, but he's also taking a shot at each time of these plagues at identifying one of these many gods. 
Not only does he say, I will send a swarm of flies, he continues on in verse 22 and he says, but on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarm of flies will be, shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. So notice the language of setting apart that is used in these verses. There's the land of Goshen and there's the land of Egypt. There's my people and there's your people. So God is sending this plague to make himself known. And in particular, we're told that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Friends, God calls us to worship him. We've seen that. We understand that. But he also reveals here his presence. God is present. Now, God is not a distant God. Powerful, yes. Sovereign, yes. Unique, yes. Gracious, yes. Holy, of course. Distant, no. He's present. And he wants to demonstrate that he's not a God somewhere out there. He is a God that is very, very present in the land, among the people. And so he says, I will send a swarm of flies, and he says, I will set apart my people from your people, the land in which they live from your land. And notice Pharaoh's response. Pharaoh had already responded to Yahweh's demand by rebelling and not allowing Israel to go. He not heeded the warnings, and as such, he opened the way for the swarm of flies to take over the land. Now the question is, how does Pharaoh respond to the plague of the swarm of flies? And I see three basic responses that we have in the rest of this plague. The first one I'm going to call attempted compromise. Look at verse 25. Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. You see what Pharaoh is doing here? He said, okay, okay, I will let you worship like you asked, but I have some stipulations. I have some requirements. You have to worship in the land. And immediately Moses responds by saying, that won't do. And let me give you a practical reason why that won't do. That wouldn't be a good idea because the worship that God is calling us to do will be an abomination to the Egyptians. And friends, it's clearly understandable why that would be the case, because the kind of worship that God wanted would be the sacrifices of bulls and goats and animals, the kind of creatures that the Egyptians thought sacred and worshipped. It would be like going outside a Hindu temple in Fremont and cooking a T-bone steak. It would be like going and having a pig roast in a Jewish synagogue, okay? That's the kind of tension that would be going on here. And Moses is like, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. And if we were to do that, your people would stone us because what we're doing would be an offense to them. So Pharaoh presses his point, conceding a little bit their demands and says, well, okay, I'll let you go into the wilderness, but you can't go far. You certainly can't go the three days journey. You just can't go far. You see, see what he's doing. God says, let my people go so that they may serve me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says, well, I'll, I'll let them do some of that, but not all of that. And friends, this is what compromise sounds like. 
It really doesn't matter where we worship or how we worship. It only matters that we worship. That sounds good. That sounds pious. It even sounds spiritual. But friends, God has spoken. He's not just concerned that they worship. He's also concerned where they worship and how they worship. You see, you can't just give up the instructions of God and say, I know he wanted that, I know he wanted that, but we are worshiping. And that's all that really matters. No, it's not. This is an example of what pastors and theologians refer to as the regulative principle in worship. The regulative principle says that we are not free to worship God however we please, however we think is right. Our worship needs to be regulated by what God says in His Word. As is the case here, those who are not God's children may not understand why something is important to God. They may think that it's foolish. Certainly we find that in the book of Corinthians, right? They might think that it's a waste of time, it's a waste of money, it's a waste of effort. But it is what God commands and expects from His children. So there's this attempt at compromise, and that attempt fails. And get this, it is Moses, remember, feeble, afraid, timid Moses, who stands his ground and speaks God's truth in that moment to Pharaoh to challenge him about his attempted compromise. But notice what happens next. Another response is, this attempted cheating look at verse 29 then Moses said behold I'm going out uh, from you and I will plead with the Lord just like you asked that the swarm of flies may depart from Pharaoh from his servants and from his people tomorrow only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord now what's Moses saying he's saying look with the plague of the frogs you promised that if God at your time that you determined um, stops this plague of frog and, and, and they, they all kind of return to the Nile or, or they die, that you would let his people go so that they could worship. But when God did what you, you agreed to, you didn't let them go. You reneged on your promise. And we're not going to allow that to happen again. You cannot cheat in this situation. Now, friends, what's happening here is this. He's recognizing that Moses, or Pharaoh, I should say, is a smooth talker. He is a king. He's a politician. He's a diplomat. He knows how to spin his words to kind of get his way. He's pleading for help, but he's also promising them their release for worship. And, friends, the church, unfortunately, and many times, can also include people who are smooth religious talkers who can use theological words and quote scripture but have a form of godliness and are not truly serving the Lord in their presence and in their uh, opportunity to kind of communicate these truths. They think that they are fooling God but they are not. Friends, hear this. You can't cheat God. He knows your heart. You might think you've accomplished something great or that you're fooling the people around you, and maybe you are, but you're not fooling God. 
God knows exactly what's in your heart. He knows that you're trying to kind of spin your way into this people or get something out of this, these people because of your smooth-talking words. So we have attempted compromise, attempted cheating, which ultimately he will do again. And then we finally have the hardness of heart. It says, So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarm of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people. No one or not one remained. That's specific there, isn't it? But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Now, I want to finish up this section by just kind of reminding us about some implications for Israel as well as for us. And I've listed four things here that just kind of summarize what we've already seen, but I think it's worth just highlighting them again and noting them so that we we have them a little bit more fixed in our mind. Number one, true worship is God's priority. You can do all sorts of things in this world. You can have a cabin up in the mountains. You can play golf. You can love to go fishing. You can do creative memories. You can be involved in watching basketball teams and soccer teams and football teams. You can be heavy into your job. You can do all sorts of things. But what God says is you must worship me. And you must set time aside to come and to worship me. Don't neglect that worship. Secondly, true worship will be an offense to the world. The world does not like the things that Christ says. The world does not like the things that are revealed in the Word of God. They do not like the fact that we identify ourselves exclusively as followers of Christ. And we don't need to do that arrogantly, of course. But even if you do it gently and with great compassion and with an understanding tone, they're still offended unless the Holy Spirit is working in their heart and He's breathing new life into them. True worship cannot be manipulated to fit into the world's standards. I think that's a really important principle for us to recognize. The world might say, well, you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do something else. But look, God has laid out for us what worship should be. I think it's interesting that during this time of sheltering in place and as we're doing live stream, (laughs) that the church that in many places has done all sorts of crazy things has kind of had to settle down to the basics. We're gathering together, praying together, singing together, and we're studying God's Word together and we're placing ourselves under it. There's some core things that God has called us to as we gather to worship Him. And it's actually beautiful and it's wonderful to take it down to those bare elements. We cannot be manipulated um, by the world to fit into their standards. And then true worship is an exclusive activity for God's people. Certainly when we gather as a a body, maybe people are listening today, and you are not a truly born-again believer, you're welcome to listen. But I I, I hear this, you're not going to understand the what and the why of what we're doing. Because this is something that is exclusive for those who call themselves Christians. We understand that. So these are implications for us. Now having looked at the flies that are swarming, let's move now to the livestock that is dying. And here, one of the principles that we're going to see kind of 
taking us through this section is that God has set us apart for a particular treasure. Now, we'll have to develop that a little bit, but I want you to think through this with me. But I remember a number of years ago, this is back in the, the 1980s, um, something happened in England where farmers were noticing strange things happening to some of their cattle. The report said that they would behave erratically, they'd become fearful, and then they'd become aggressive. And they seemed to go mad, and that's why it was dubbed as the mad cow disease. And the last stages of the disease were frightening as cattle staggered around the farm until finally they stumbled to the ground and died. But even worse than that was that it spread to humans. And individuals who had eaten contaminated beef literally lost their minds. The scientists discovering what was happening recognized that the brains of these people, the tissue, was gradually eaten away by the disease until it came to resemble a sponge. And understandably, it spread panic all across uh, Europe and became one of the most terrifying plagues in modern history. All the farmers feared losing their cattle. As a result, there was a 10-year ban of the export of, uh, of meat uh, from the United Kingdom into the rest of the world, particularly where they would send it would be the rest of Europe. Certainly farmers suffered hardship. Many of them lost their farms. But friends, there's something very familiar taking place in this plague. Let's just look at it. Here's the plague. Beginning at verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of heavens, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall in a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. Now once again, we see God's demands, obedience or consequence, let my people go so that they may serve me or refuse and still hold them. And once again, we see the consequence for rebellion in the form of, an, of another plague. The hand of the Lord will fall, a very severe plague upon your livestock. And what makes this a very severe plague? Well, notice first of all, the extent of the plague. It says it will kill all the domestic animals in the field. Horses, um, the donkeys, the camels, the flocks, all. Now that might seem strange to you, especially in light of the fact that the plague that's not next but after the next is the plague of hail, where Pharaoh is told to make sure that all the livestock is put into the safety of the shelters or they will die. So how is it that God causes all the livestock to die in one plague, and then two plagues later, God, there are still livestock that are owned by the Egyptians, right? That's a, that's a fair question. This apparent contradiction in Scripture is one that we just have to sort through, and we need to make sure that it is answered and answered reasonably. And there is a reasonable answer here. It would appear, first of all, that there is an emphasis in both passages about the livestock that is in the field and the livestock that is under 
shelter. You notice there it says in the field. Historians have found uh, that one of the cultural practices of the Egyptians was to have half of the livestock out in the field while half was kept in shelter. So it's likely that the plague is limited to the livestock that's already in the field. Second, and this is going to come a shock to you, but the word all in Scripture doesn't always mean all, but is what we consider a collective all. Let me give you a few examples. You have a teenager who comes home late and his mom has bought pizza for dinner and so he comes back late and he lifts the lid and there's two pieces of pizza there and he says, who ate all the pizza? But there's still two pieces there, right? Or how about this? I talked to someone the other day about two weeks ago um, in our pandemic who told me that they had gone to Safeway and all the shelves were empty. Now, they weren't all empty, but they said they were all empty. There was still pizza left, but all the pizza's gone. You get me? Now, turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, because we actually find this kind of expression in the Word of God. And we need to see that all doesn't always mean all. You need to look at the context to determine what all means. So Mark chapter 1 and verses 4 through 5, listen to what it says. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, if we take that literally, why did Jesus have to do ministry? Because all of Judea is there, all of Jerusalem is there. No, it's an expression that means there was a whole bunch of people from Judea and Jerusalem that came to be baptized. But it doesn't mean that everyone who was there came to be baptized. So this is all, it's a collective all. And so just putting those two things together, we can say this, all is referring here to all those that are in the field. It also can refer to all different kinds of livestock, the horses, the cows, the goats, as well as this collective all, um, meaning that not all of the livestock, but the ones uniquely that are in the field are the ones affected, all right? Now, the, the extent though is is grand, isn't it? Even if that is true, that's a whole bunch of livestock. And that brings us to the second thing, and that is the value of the livestock. This is important for us to recognize. Horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks, all of these things are important to the, the people. This is their livelihood. Horses, they were used to till the land and to, to, to draw carts. Donkeys are animals also that birds did the hard work. Camels were used for, for selling of merchandise and for travel. Of course, the herds and the flocks were there for, for milking and for, for eating, all that kind of stuff, right? So the impact of the plague is this. It will leave the average Egyptian household without wealth and without the ability to provide for their families. And it would affect the commerce in the land. Livestock was how wealth was measured in the ancient world. That's why when, you know, back in the ancient world, someone says, well, yes, you can marry my daughter, but you need to tell me how many cows you have and how many sheep you have and how many donkeys you have, right? 
because the, the cattle, the animals were, in a sense, what we would call today our financial portfolio. When you open their financial portfolio, it's a list of all their livestock because that was what was used to measure someone's value. So friends, it'd be kind of like, it'd be kind of like God uh, causing a virus to, to, to break out in our banks. And it targeted all of our savings, our 401ks, and our IRAs. And it, it eventually had an impact on inflation and had an impact on the, the, the property values in your neighborhood. And all you would have left, the only thing that was left was what was in your checking account. Okay, So it's just kind of a sense we understand the impact. This was significant. Lives were being affected here would have some permanent implications that would take place. So this plague is hitting at the heart of the Egyptian economy. Their wealth, what they valued as their treasure. And once again, this plague confronts Egyptian gods. Once, like I said, um, you know, it's really, really hard to keep up with all these Egyptian gods. And I'm not expecting you to memorize all this or, or to pay too much attention to it, just to note that there are specific gods that would be identified here as God speaking against and confronting, right? Ptah, the image of an apis bull. Isis, cow's horns on her head. Hathor is a cow. Montu was the head of an ox. Kanum, a ram's head. These are all domestic kind of animals that God says, you know what? I am going to strike them down. So friends, we need to be mindful that this plague had a purpose. But notice secondly here the distinction that is made. Now as much as the plague on the livestock is a miracle, what happens next is even more of a miracle. God is making a distinction by setting apart the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. The land of Goshen seems to have been located somewhere in the eastern uh, delta of the Nile, and God put a protection around it so that none of his wrath, none of his judgment would spill over into any of the livestock of the Israelites. What an incredible demonstration of uh, God's mighty power for Pharaoh and for the people of of Egypt. What an encouragement to the children of Israel to know that they have a God who protects them this way. So there is this distinction that we find in verse 4, but the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock. All right, it's a hard line. Now, so this is God saying, I'm going to perform this plague. This is going to happen, but by the way, it's not going to reach this section here, and it doesn't. That's pretty specific. Not only that, we notice here the timing. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing on the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. So once again, the Lord sets the time and He fulfills what He says. He demonstrates His power and His sovereignty. And even from the time that He speaks the judgment here, there is time for Pharaoh to repent. You think that there's time there. It's not just to show that God is in control of his universe, but it's also an opportunity for those who are under judgment to say, wait a second, we see you. We see how powerful you are. We see that you are a God that is worthy of our obedience and ultimately our worship. And then notice the response. And Pharaoh 
sent and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. The first thing that happens here is investigation. He goes out, he sends some guys out to, to look over the land to try and figure out what had taken place. And sure enough, what does he find? Not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. I mean, this should be neon lights for Pharaoh. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. So investigation, and then further hardness of heart. Now, what's, what's really sad here is, yes, his heart is hardening more and more against God, but the reality is, because he's hardened against God, his heart is also hardened against people. All this suffering is taking place. As the leader, he could stop. He could let the children of Israel go, and the suffering on his people would stop. But no, the hardness of his heart causes him to bring more suffering and hardship for those that are under his watchful care. And he's demonstrating himself, one who was considered to be a God himself, as totally impotent in caring for his own people. But there's an implication for us. The world measures their wealth by fi a financial portfolio. God's people who have been changed by the gospel and welcomed into the family of God, our wealth is measured in different terms. You see, we, we focus much more time and effort on the riches of Christ than pursuing the riches of this world. As I said it there on the screen, we pursue the riches of Christ above the riches of the world. Now we value one above the other. God's not saying you should not be rich or that Christians shouldn't have good things. But as Christians, we know that all of this stuff is simply temporary. What's truly valuable is what is eternal. So we build our houses on the rock of Christ, not on the sinking sound of the world and its pursuits. We seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then as faithful stewards, we seek to honor Him with our earthly riches, however much or little that might be. And we seek to use them for His glory, not just for our own selfish pursuits. You see, the world has no value of Christ, that it bows down to the God of personal wealth and to the myriad of gods that promise self-fulfillment apart from Christ. And when one's wealth gets in the way of one's worship, we are in real danger, friends. And we need to have our priorities restored. And as followers of Christ, we can get caught up by having our treasure misplaced when it should be in Christ rather than on the things of this world. We love the song, All I Have Is Christ. I know we love it because when we sing it, I can hear it. I can hear how you love to sing that, that cry from the heart, All I Have Is Christ. But friends, what if Christ was all you had? Would you be able to pick your head up in your earthly poverty and find that in Jesus you have all that you need? Would you be able to rest in what He provides? Would you find assurance that He actually still cares about you and loves you? Would the prospect of heaven 
be sweeter. Friends, the treasure that the world pursues is found in material wealth, but our treasure is found in our union with Christ. And Jesus sets us apart for a particular treasure, a treasure that becomes ours when we are radically changed by the gospel and are welcomed into the family of God and are clothed in the righteous robes of Christ and enjoy a full inheritance with the saints. That's our treasure. Everything else is a stewardship. So, we've seen the flies that are swarming, the livestock that is dying. Now I want to take us to this last plague, the boils that are festering. And here we see that God sets us apart for a particular comfort. Notice, first of all, the plague. There is some irony going on in this plague. It says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. And it shall become fine dust over all the land and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout the land of Egypt. The irony, first of all, is this. He says to take soot from the kiln. Now you have to remember what was happening to the children of Israel. They were slaves in the land and their job was to make bricks and those bricks would be baked where? In a kiln. And the dust then would be the result of that baking. You see there's some irony going on here that those who are, that God is actually using the tools that the Israelites were using as the means of his response or his judgment on the Egyptians. There's also some justice that's taking place here because the boils are breaking out, the sores are breaking out on man and beast. If the sooty irony, if the soot is irony, then the boils and the sores on man and beast are an earthly form of justice. Those who are guilty of treating the Israelites with contempt and a heavy-handed slavery are now suffering a plague born out of the very same ovens. Now certainly, friends, there's also symbolism going on here. There's something strategic um, in, in the symbolism about what God is having Moses and Aaron do in the seventh plague, or I should say the sixth plague. He is confronting Pharaoh and the Egyptians with their own tools of oppression, Secondly, he is exposing the impotence of Egypt's gods. Here we go every time. He's, he's addressing this. And you have a number of gods there. Aminotep, the god of medicine and healing. Toth, the god of medical learning. Isis, the goddess of love, magic and medicine. Sekhmet, a lion-headed goddess that is supposed to have the power to create epidemics as well as to bring them to an end. Now, we have to recognize the severity of this disease, these, these boils that break out into sores. And I think it's, it's understandable for us to come to the conclusion here that even these gods of medicine, gods with little g's of medicine, are nothing. And they can do nothing for the people. And friends, we must remember, medicine is a wonderful tool that God has given mankind but it is no replacement for God 
himself. God is sovereign over medicine. He works through it for his glory. So yes, we go to a doctor and we're going through a critical time. We, we ask for wisdom. We ask for counsel. We ask for, for, for help. And yet behind all that, we know that God is at work using the wisdom of man, probably a pagan man or a pagan woman who wants to help you, but it is God who's behind that accomplishing his purposes through their hands. So we have the plague. Notice the suffering. Verse 11, And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. Now who is suffering here? The text moves from general to specific. Man and beast throughout all the land. Verse 11, the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. So the suffering is entering into the palace, into the king's court. Now, if you remember the third plague, the gnats, the magicians could do nothing to copy that miracle. And they announced Pharaoh, surely this is the finger of God. Now, in this third plague, in this set of plagues, the magicians cannot stand before Moses. Now, remember, Moses is an ambassador of God. He's a representative. Or a representative of God. God said to Moses in chapter 7, verse 1, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. So if the magicians can't stand before Moses, then they cannot stand before God. And the reason they cannot stand before God is because that they are full of boils and sores. Their plagued and diseased condition is hindering their ability to stand God, powerless before God. They have been defeated. They have been vanquished. This is the last that we will hear of them. And it's a reminder of what we read in Psalm 1 about the condition of the wicked, verses 5 and 6. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Friends, there is no enemy of God who will be able to stand against him. Yes, Satan is described as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is spoken of as the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world. But hear this, Jesus says in John 12, verse 31, Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And in Romans 16, 20, the apostle Paul, assures the Roman church, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Friends, do you see the comfort in the destruction that is made here, or to say the distinction that is made here? The wicked will not stand, they will perish. The Lord knows the righteous. This is all from Psalm 1. God takes this distinction he makes a distinction, but his distinction is against the wicked, and it's for those who are his. And friends, that is a comfort to us. Notice now the hardness. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And his hardness is, 
intensifying, isn't it? It's, it's, it's against the testimony of God. It's against the proof of God's power and sovereignty. It's, a, it's in spite of personal suffering. It's a hardness in face of his own cabinet, the magicians who are impotent and suffering and, and uh, humiliated. And because of the boils and the sores, the magicians cannot stand before Moses. However, God sets us apart as his children as people who can stand with confidence because Jesus Christ has accomplished for us what God demands. He set us apart for a particular comfort, a comfort that is only found in Christ and His gospel. Now, friends, as we bring things to a close, in these plagues, God has brought judgment on the land. He's ruined it. He's brought judgment on the commerce. He's killed it off. He's brought judgment on the health, physical pain and suffering. But I want you to notice as we come here to the end, I want to go back to this word, a distinction. Because we are set apart for God's glory. The Exodus story is the story of Israel's salvation and the condemnation of Egypt. Just follow along as I read this passage. This is Deuteronomy 7. This is Moses speaking again to that second generation. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, or know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. It's a powerful statement. He says, I have chosen you because I love you and I've committed myself to you, and that's why I'm carrying this out. But this distinction doesn't stand alone. And you may have caught this. I want to invite you to turn to verse 23 of our text. And in verse 23, it says this. This is in chapter 8, I believe, right? It says, I will put a division between my people and your people. And you say, well, hey, haven't we already seen that? You set apart a distinction, now a division. Except that word division is not a word that you might think it is. It's actually the Hebrew word peduth, which means a ransom. It means a redemption. See, when God is saying, I'm making a distinction, he's talking then about the means of that distinction. And the means of that distinction is yet to come. And it will come, first of all, in Exodus chapter 12. When Israel is commanded to, to, to have this meal and to, to take a, a young lamb, a spotless lamb, and to sacrifice it and put the blood on the doorpost, we call that Passover. And Passover was simply foreshadowing the ultimate sacrifice that we see in the Gospels, and that, of course, is the sacrifice of none other than Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, who sheds His blood for the sin of the world. He pays the price. He pays the ransom price. And so hear this. God sets us apart. He sets us apart by means of redemption. 
He sets us apart by means of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. He makes a distinction with us. He looks at us, his people, his church, and says, I have loved you, and this is how I've loved you. And therefore, as God's people, we respond having been set apart to be set apart for a particular kind of worship, a worship that truly honors and glorifies God. We are set apart with a particular kind of treasure. Yes, we live our lives in this world and we enjoy all that God has given us, but we long to be present with Him. We long for the certainty and the joy of our home in heaven. And we've been set apart with a particular kind of comfort and confidence because of what Jesus Christ has done. We can stand before God, not because of anything we have done, but because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. See, friends, this is such a wonderful truth. Not only is God speaking to, to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians, not only is he speaking to the second generation of the wilderness, but he's speaking to us. And he says, listen, I have called you. You are set apart for my glory. Friends, marvel at that. Be in awe of that. Dwell on that. Rejoice in that. You and I need that. Lord, help us today to love you, to worship you, to reorient our treasure, to find comfort, Lord, that only comes because we have been set apart. And then, Lord, also may we think through then, if that is true, if we are set apart, how is it then that you want us to live our lives for your glory? We bask, Lord, in the, the beauty of your kindness and grace toward us. Help us, Lord, also rejoice that we can now seek to live our lives for your glory in light of being set apart. And we ask, Lord, for your strength. We're thankful for your word. And Lord, we want to be counseled by your Holy Spirit through the word. Help us, Lord, even in this time of sheltering in place and the pandemic uh, fog still being around us, Lord, help us to dwell on these things, to rejoice in them and to be strengthened by them. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.